Welcome to the second episode of our podcast's third season, Scary But True Campfire Stories, brought to you by Dudes Camping. Hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening, and please, spread the word, tell your friends, tell your neighbor. Post it on Facebook, Twitter X, Instagram, Truth Social, TikTok, and any other social media outlet that makes other people's lives look like an exciting vacation, except for yours. Our goal is to share true stories of strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, conspiracy, or just unexplained supernatural story and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. Betty and Barney Hill experienced almost two hours of missing time in their UFO encounter. In this second episode of a two-part series, we will uncover their horrifying suppressed memories. After months of intensive hypnotherapy, they were able to piece together the events that would haunt them for the rest of their lives, and also start a wave of cultural abductions that are still happening to this day. The research in this episode relies heavily upon the book Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience by Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin and can be found on Amazon. Sit back, relax, and enjoy The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Abduction Part 2. We were finally able to set up an appointment with Dr. Simon. He had immigrated here from Russia and still had a very heavy Russian accent. We talked to him about what we were trying to do and he thought he might be able to help us by using hypnoregression. Simon told us that this was not stage hypnosis, but a special technique he developed to help men returning from the war in the 40s. After several preliminary appointments, he officially diagnosed Betty and myself with disassociative amnesia related to our inability to recall a period of missing time. After several weeks of training, we were ready to go under. Dr. Simon took us into his office, and we went through months of extensive sessions. Usually, Betty and I were separated, and they were all recorded. After piecing the sessions together and wading through the emotional trauma, Betty and I were so disturbed at what was uncovered that we didn't speak to anybody for days about this. What you are about to hear is what really happened on the night of September 19th and 20th. It is much more disturbing than we could ever imagine. There's a natural granite rock formation near Indian Head that resembles a Native American profile just south of the valley through Franconia Notch. As we drove around the very wide curve that took us straight toward it, I looked and saw something unbelievable. There in front of us was a flattened, circular, cigar-shaped disc just hovering. It just came out of nowhere, or else I wasn't paying attention. We were searching for a moving light in the sky, and here, this thing right in front of us was about 80 to 100 feet above our vehicle. I slammed on the brakes in complete astonishment. I grabbed the binoculars from Betty as she let out a cry. Barney! What the heck is that? I opened the car door with the lights on 
and the car still running. I used the car and the door to stabilize the binoculars. It was floating right over the road in front of us. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This craft was 60 to 80 feet wide. It looked like a giant pancake with lights and windows floating in the air. It had a double row of rectangular windows going across its rim. As I looked through the viewfinder, this craft moved without making a sound away from us and stopped right above the treetops in a field to the right. I shut the door and looked around the area. We were completely alone on this two-lane highway, not another car in sight. I quickly walked around the front of the car and motioned to Betty, Stay near the car. I'm going to get a closer look. She nervously blurted out, Barney, what is it? Is it an airplane? I don't know. I don't know. I'll be right back, I said as I walked off the road and into the field. I put my hand on the gun inside my pants pocket just to reassure myself that I would be safe. I was wearing a nice pair of dress shoes with slacks and a jacket. I didn't consider the terrain I was walking on now. I could feel the ground was soft but not muddy as I walked through the fields towards this thing. I felt like something was telling me to come closer. I couldn't believe this. I blinked my eyes, but it was still there. As I got close to it, I watched these things come out of the sides like fins or wings and form a V-shape. Each side had a red light at its tip and it slightly tilted toward me at a 45-degree angle. My thoughts were racing because... I didn't know how to rationalize this thing. I've never seen an airliner look or act like this. It had to be a military helicopter. I lifted the binoculars to my eyes and looked through the windows. I was close enough now to see what looked like people moving about inside. They were wearing glossy black leather uniforms. They had what looked like black caps with short bills on them. They moved with purpose and had the precision of military officers. I noticed the craft was moving, so I lowered the binoculars to look directly at it. It was tilting more towards me, as if it was aiming those two red lights, and then it began to descend in my direction. I looked back through the binoculars and saw that these people moving about the ship were humanoid, but I don't think they were human. These people, or creatures or whatever, were bustling them back and forth, at least ten or more. They had these haunting, slanted, deep black eyes. I have never seen anything like it before. There was one that reminded me of a red-headed Irishman. I don't know why. But there was one who just stood at the window. He was looking out into the distance. No. He was looking directly at me. He had the same slanted eyes, but such an evil face. He reminded me of a Nazi officer. I got the impression that this was the leader. I looked at him, and I could feel him speaking to me through my mind. Don't move. Just keep looking. Stay there. Don't move. And keep looking. I became so terrified that I started begging God to help me. I was about to be taken from this field like a rabbit plucked from his hiding place. I was overcome with fear. I don't believe it, I cried. Please, God. Give me the strength to get out of here. Don't let them take me, I pleaded. It took everything I had to tear the binoculars from my face and muster all my courage to move from that spot. I turned and raced back to the car, not even paying attention to what I might kick or stumble on in the dark. 
I ran around the front of the Chevy and breathlessly shouted to Betty, Get in the car. Get in now. We need to get out of here now. What is it, Barney? What did you see? We need to get out of here. <laughs> we could all be captured. We both got in the car and slammed the doors. I threw the clutch in the gear and we sped away from that thing as fast as our 57 Chevy would go. I don't know why, but I was so scared that I started laughing. Our dog Delsey was in the back sticking his head over the seat to see what the fuss was about. Betty was trying to peer out the window in the direction we just came from while I was focused on the road. <laughs> there had to be some natural explanation for what I just saw, but I couldn't rationalize it. It'll come to me later, what that thing really was, but we needed to get out of there immediately. As I was speeding down the highway, I heard Betty turn around and point directly overhead out the front windshield and say, There it is. Oh, God, Barney, what is that? It's got to be a military helicopter or something. Why is it following us? I had the accelerator pushed all the way to the floor so the car was going as fast as it could. What is this thing? I kept asking myself. Suddenly, there was a buzzing tone that sounded like tuning forks bouncing off the trunk. There was kind of a rhythmic pattern to it. Betty turned around to see what it was. She didn't say a word but had a puzzled look on her face as she looked out the rear window. What is it? What is happening? I frantically blurted out. There was nothing out of the ordinary on the trunk of our vehicle, and Betty responded, I don't know. I don't see anything. Is it Morris code? I just kept my hands on the wheel, concentrating on the road. Then, out of nowhere, I felt something very strange, this vibrating sensation that seemed to penetrate to my bones. It was extremely intense, but gradually diminished, or I started to get used to it, I don't know. I saw a side road coming up on my left, so I made a rapid left-hand turn. I'm not really sure why I did this. Maybe I figured I could lose this thing somehow. As soon as I turned, I saw a fiery orb by the side of the road, like an orange moon just sitting in front of us. Standing in front of this thing were the silhouettes of men in the road, maybe eight or ten. They signaled us to stop. I raised my arm to my eyes and screamed out, Oh no, not again. One of them swung his arms in a pendulum motion, and suddenly the motor died, leaving us completely helpless. I tried to start the car again, but it just wouldn't run. I could see these men approaching the car, swaying with a strange side-to-side -side motion as they walked. There was a voice in my head telling me to calm down and that I wouldn't be harmed, but I didn't believe that for a second. I had no idea what was happening, and I heard myself tell Betty, I think it's the men from the craft again. Betty started crying uncontrollably. They split up, and they came to either side of our car. There were three or four men on each side. No... Not men. They were creatures. Short, big, slanted black eyes. Very thin and pale. Their skin reminded me of an elephant's gray body. It was the most frightening thing I have ever seen. I was about to reach for the gun in my pocket, but I got this blast of fear and a warning in my head. Don't do that. You will be harmed if you do that. I was completely helpless. Betty was sobbing as they dragged her from the car and opened the door to pull me out too. I felt cold hands grab my arms 
and I began to struggle with whatever ounce of fight I had in me. I was twisting and was about to burst out with rage when this pair of huge black eyes came right up to me, looked me right in the face, and I felt as if something pierced my soul. I suddenly went limp and was unable to resist. My mind went blank as they dragged me out of the car. I could feel my toes scraping the ground as they pulled me along. I closed my eyes and, and I just blacked out. The next thing I know, I'm taken into a, a hospital room or something. They lift me up and lay me down on a hard slab or table, an examining table or operating table. I can't move and I'm afraid, but I can't get away. I can't run. What am I going to do? Maybe if I let them do what they want, they'll let me go. They took off my shoes, my socks. What are they doing? I hear these creatures making some sort of weird humming noise. I'm lying on my back and they start removing my pants. Why? Why are they doing this? What are they going to do to me? I can't believe this is happening. I close my eyes as hard as I can. Please let this be quick. Just do it and let me go. I begin to whimper. They remove my pants and then flip me over. I feel their fingers touching the skin on my back and follow it up and down my spine. Are they counting my spinal column? The fingers are cold and disgusting. I feel the pressure of something, maybe a finger at the base of my spine. Then, then, they stick something in my... It feels like a pencil or a pen, but they just put it inside me and pull it out again. How can they do this? Who are these people? They turn me over, and I feel two fingers grab the bottom of my jaw inside my mouth and pull it open. There's pressure inside my mouth, and I can feel they remove my dentures. Suddenly they start bustling around as if something happened. They seem completely rattled by my teeth coming out. I quickly open my eyes to see a few of them rush out the room. I'm left with three of these creatures brooding over me. This is completely terrifying. They had big black slanted eyes and that I just couldn't look at. I shut my eyes again in terror and I could feel them examining my ears and putting pressure on my bones and my face. Why? Why are they focusing on my facial bones? After a few moments, the other ones come back in the room. I just kept my eyes shut. I feel them putting something around, around my, my manhood. It was some sort of gel or solution. What in the world are they doing? I feel this tug down there. A pressure that makes me wince. Oh, God. Are they going to remove it? It, it? it feels like they're just taking a sperm sample. I feel no sensation except intense pressure and fear. Then they start taking samples from my nose, my mouth, my eyes. Oh, God. Please help me. Betty's version. I tried to get out of the car, but as soon as I grabbed the door handle, the door was open from the outside and these beings, awful-looking creatures, grabbed me and started pulling me out. I started sobbing, and I could see that Barney was being dragged away. I think they knocked him out or killed him. Oh, Barney, help me. This has to be a dream. I've got to wake myself up. How do I wake myself up? I'm trying, but nothing is happening. 
We are walking through the woods, and I won't wake up. I am walking, but they're dragging poor Barney. Oh, Barney, wake up, will you? I'm getting angry now, angry at Barney for not waking up, angry at these men for scaring us and taking us. But they are not men. Oh, God, what are they? They have big eyes and go around the sides of their faces. They look like cat's eyes or a lizard's eyes, like a gecko. Either way, the eye was very dark, or the pupil was very large because it filled up most of the eye, leaving hardly any white showing. Something about those eyes is just terribly upsetting. Their skin is gray like aluminum, like the color of an elephant. They have wide cheeks and small chins, big heads, very elongated, with no ears, or maybe just ear holes. They're showing no emotions at all as they lead us to God knows where. We are walking on a path in the woods. I yell out, Barney, will you wake up? The one that was walking beside me spoke, but he didn't speak. I heard him thinking to me. His name is Barney. I turned and looked at him. It's none of your business, I thought to myself, but I didn't say it. I was too frightened to speak. But somehow he heard me. He spoke in my mind that there was no reason to be afraid. They were just going to do some tests and then we could go free. We walked further and I could see this thing sitting on the ground. It was metal, but it wasn't shiny. There was a ramp that came down to the ground and we headed directly towards it. I have to wait for the moment when I can get away from them and run. Oh, but I can't leave Barney. Oh, Barney, wake up, Barney, you damn fool. Why won't you wake up? I start to get angry and I'm screaming in my mind. Who do these people think they are? They have no right to do this to us or take us somewhere I don't want to go. Whatever they think they are doing, I am not going. I start fighting and resisting as we reach the ramp. I can see Barney being dragged up as his toes are causing a loud scraping sound. I turn and flail my arms as violently as I can. The men on either side of me grab my wrists very hard and try to subdue me. I am fighting and kicking and screaming. I hear my dress rip as it snags on something and tears. I am so angry. They pull me up the ramp as I struggle and fight. These thin men look frail, but they have so much strength. I finally just give up. Barney is already inside, and I know that I can't just leave him. I have absolutely no control, no power to resist, so I resign myself to my fate. The men release their grip on my arms when they see that I see struggling, or they sense my resignation. My arms were throbbing from where they had been holding me. They lead me through an oval-shaped door and onto their ship where I feel the air immediately get cooler. They take me into this corridor and show me, or motion me, towards the first door. It opens into a room that has a very bright bluish light. I had no idea how this door opened. I've never seen anything like it before. Once inside the room, I see Barney being dragged past. They are taking him somewhere else. I wish they would just keep us in the same room. They motion me to lie on this hard white metal table. There are several people around me now, examining my dress, touching my hair. They're making odd humming noises that 
I'm able to somehow understand broken words. One seems to be giving orders. He must be the leader. I can understand most of what he is saying, but the one that is examining me is too difficult to understand. They aren't speaking English, so I don't know how I'm able to understand anything. The leader points at my shoes, and another one starts removing them. Then the examiner pushes up my sleeves to look at my arms. He turns my left arm over and puts it under this machine like a... like a microscope or something. I see him turn to the leader and say something that I can't understand. They must have been taking pictures of something. My arm or bones. Then the leader hands what looks like a letter opener to the examiner, and he scrapes my arm. Ouch! They put the skin onto a small piece of plastic. They beam a very bright light into my eye like an examination, then into my mouth, ears. Then I feel something pushed in my ear like a metal Q-tip. It's put onto another piece of material, then handed to the leader who then rolls it up and puts it in a drawer. I feel a cold and foreign hand grab the back of my neck. Then a couple strands of my hair are yanked out of my head. Some more of my hair is cut off with a tool that looks like scissors, but not. My hair is handed to the leader, who then puts it in the same drawer with the other samples they took. My eyes are shut, and I am so scared of what they are going to do next. They do something to my fingernails. They examine my feet and toes. They pull me up from the table, and I get the impression, or somehow they are telling me that they are going to remove my dress. The examiner stands behind me, and he tugs at the zipper several times, and I hear it start to rip from the stitching. Does he not know how to use a zipper? I reach behind and slightly zip it down properly until he sees how it's done. He continues himself. He lets my dress fall to the floor in a pile, and I can feel him behind me just staring at my back. He puts his cold, disgusting fingers all over my spinal column, and I just feel so awful. They put me back onto the table and the examiner grabs something like a long tube with a needle on the end of it. It was four or six inches long. Oh my God, that is the biggest needle I've ever seen. I hope, I hope, oh no. He hovers over my stomach and jabs it into my navel. Oh, oh the pain is excruciating. This doesn't feel like a normal needle. It feels like I'm being stabbed with a knife. Oh, God, what are you doing? Please stop. Please stop. You're killing me. Make it stop. I'm crying uncontrollably, and I just want it to stop. After a few seconds, the needle is removed, and I'm so relieved that I just want to thank him. My fear dissolves into a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. The examiner walks out of the room, and I'm left alone with the leader. All my animosity now had morphed into gratefulness as I wept in relief. The leader is just staring at me intensely, and I can feel him speaking to me. Why do you cry? This is so strange to me. I have no idea what to think. Nobody's going to believe me. People don't even believe you exist, and they're going to think I'm crazy. I have to take something back with me to prove that I'm not crazy. Go ahead. Look around and see if there's anything you would like to take. 
I stand up from the table and move around the mostly empty room. There was what looked to be like cabinets with a large book lying on top. It was the only thing that looked familiar to me. I pick it up and flip through a few pages. It doesn't look like any book I've ever seen before. It has what looks like writing that goes up and down. It has short lines, but they are different sizes. Some are very thin, some are medium, and some are heavy, and there are dots with straight and curved lines. Can you read this book? I hear the leader ask me in my head. I'm not taking it to read. I'm taking it to prove we've met people from another planet. Where are you from, anyway? Do you know anything about the universe? I know that the sun is the center of the universe and it has nine planets, and that there are millions and millions of stars. I watch the leader walk across the room and open a rectangular compartment in the wall. He pulls out a holographic image with dots scattered all over it. Some are just pinpoints and some are the size of a nickel. There were curved lines going from one dot to another and a very large circle that connected to another large but slightly smaller circle by several heavy solid lines. Some of the dots were broken like dotted lines. Have you ever seen a map like this before? No. Why are some lines heavy and some lines are dotted? The broken lines are expeditions. Do you know where you are on this map? He asked. I have no idea, I laughed. I didn't even know what I was looking at. If you don't know where you are, then there would be no point in telling you where we are from. He rolled the hologram into itself and pushed it back into the wall. How long does your species live? I heard him ask me. I don't know, 65 or 70? I think a lifespan is supposed to be about a 100 years, but we usually die of disease or an accident. If we're lucky, we die of old age. He didn't seem to know what old age was, and I explained it to him the best I could. Some of the other beings come into the room and tell me that it's time to go. I reach for the book, but one of the other beings gets angry that I would touch anything in this room. I got the impression that I was not to take the book, and there was a fierceness to it. I begin to feel that cold dread come back to me, so I immediately obeyed. I set the book down. I hear the same voice say that our memories were going to be erased and we will not remember a thing. I become angry and defiantly say, I will remember this if it's the last thing I do. You will never, never make me forget about this. It doesn't matter. If you do remember, Barney won't remember a thing. And if he does, he will remember it differently than you. It is best if you just forget it. I'm being led back to the car. Thank God, thank God it's over. I don't seem to have control of my legs or arms. I can see the car just sitting in the dark with the doors wide open. I'm taken to the driver's side and put in the seat. I hear Delcy whimpering in the back of the car, hiding under the seat. I turn around and touch her. Poor girl. I have the use of my arms and legs now. Those creatures are gone, and I can see Betty walking down the road. She slowly gets in the car. 
We are both numb and don't seem conscious at all. But we are. I'm extremely lightheaded, like I'm just waking up from being knocked out. Suddenly, off in the distance, an orange ball of light ascends above us. It looks like a big ball of orange water. Very strange. It goes up a little and then it just shoots up into the night sky. I reverse the car and get back on Highway 3. Both of us are groggy and we feel strange. Betty and I keep driving without saying a word to each other when, again, I hear the rhythmic buzzing sound in the back of the car. Betty turns to me and asks, Now do you believe in flying saucers? I turn back to her and say, Don't be ridiculous. After seven months of hypnosis sessions with Dr. Simon at our own expense, Betty and I were terrified. Dr. Simon was still skeptical that it actually happened and suggested that whenever we began to feel apprehensive or anxious, we were to tell ourselves that we were not captured, that it was only a dream. One day I got a call from John Luttrell from a Boston newspaper. He was going to do an article on our story and needed some more information. Betty and I told him that we did not want him to do an article on us. I had just been nominated to the Human Rights Commission for the state of New Hampshire, and this was the last thing that I needed. Betty would probably lose her job as a child welfare worker with the state. We pleaded with him to not do the article, but apparently he had an audio recording of our confidential talk to members of the two-state UFO study group we attended. Luttrell had also somehow gained access to a copy of our Blue Book file. Monday, October 25th, 1965, an article was published in the Boston Traveler. UFO Chiller. Did they seize couple by John Luttrell? That snake. He published it anyway. Suddenly, we found ourselves surrounded by media and we were plunged into the public eye something we desperately tried to avoid. Everything I had been working towards, all my social work, civil rights, integrity, stability, all under attack by people who were looking to discredit us now. My anxiety began to soar. I had the worst ulcers you can imagine. We navigated through the unwanted media attention for months, and my ulcers seemed to get worse and worse. Not only that, but we had several more sightings, like one time, we were leaving Betty's parents, and we saw that same reddish-orange light bouncing directly in front of us. Its flight was erratic, and it traveled over the treetops. I got out and flashed the headlights to signal this thing. What am I doing? I immediately freaked out. Do I want to get captured again? We finally came to terms with the attention and rode the wave since there was no way to avoid it now. A book was written to address the issues that were arising. We made several television and radio appearances. The rights to make a movie were even sold to James Earl Jones. One day, Betty was reading a New York Times article about radio signals from outer space. Barney! Oh my God, Barney! She cried out. Nearly scared me out of my chair. What is it, dear? Look at this! She showed me a star map that was included in the article. Uh, what am I looking at, dear? I said. This is almost identical to the star map that I saw on the ship that night. Now, I would have just brushed this off as hopeful fantasy, except 
when she was under Dr. Simon's hypnotherapy, he told her that she would remember the map exactly as she saw it, and she copied it down. There was a drawing in Dr. Simon's files. We contacted Dr. Simon, and he provided us with a copy. We also took Betty's dress to get chemically analyzed due to the odd changing of color. Betty wanted to reestablish contact with our captors, and I'd been so entrenched in this world now that I could care less either way. We entered into a series of experiments with two scientists to try and contact the beings that had abducted us. We were convinced that we were still being watched, and Betty was adamant about getting physical evidence to prove that she had been experimented on by alien beings. We entered into what they called psychophysical communication, and that's when the strange stuff started happening. On December 10th, we came home to find a big chunk of ice sitting on our kitchen table. It was oval-shaped and had something imprinted into it. I grabbed it and threw it into the sink and turned the hot water on. I don't care what was imprinted on it. It don't belong in our house. A couple of weeks later, I was sitting in the kitchen when I heard the front door open. Somebody stamped their feet and walked upstairs. I just stared at Betty in shock. Who the heck just walked into our house? I ran upstairs and looked in every room. There was nobody. Then it happened again one night while we were sleeping. Paranormal events started taking place in our home and also in our family members' homes, and it seemed to happen almost immediately after Betty began to try to contact our abductors. I'm starting to think that this was a bad idea. Betty went on to have an extensive UFO career, she had many more sightings and even organized Skywatch expeditions with some success, but her attempts to reestablish contact caused her to fall into the fringe of UFO abductees as time went on. This does not negate the original abduction and in some way may possibly add validity to the experience. Betty might have been unable to process the event and in her search for answers may have been led astray by well-meaning or not-so-well-meaning individuals. Unfortunately, Barney Hill died of a stroke on February 25, 1969. Betty was devastated, but continued to pursue answers to her experience. The physical evidence was analyzed and well-documented. Barney's shoes being scuffed at the toes were photographed and analyzed. Betty's torn dress was chemically analyzed and the cause of discoloration could not be determined. Also, the radar confirmation from Project Blue Book that corroborated the strange unidentified object in the night sky on September 19th and 20th. Unfortunately, the spots on the trunk of the car were never professionally analyzed, and they had thrown away the watches because they stopped working. These two pieces of evidence could have been significant in confirming their story. Betty's report about the needle being inserted into her navel feeling like a stab wound from a knife is compared to a medical procedure now administered on a routine basis to determine the genetic makeup of a fetus. The procedure, known as amniocentesis, was still in its experimental stages in 1961 and not known by many people. A similar procedure, called laparoscopy, was not common until the 1990s. Betty was asked to appear on the lie detector show 
where she was given a test by the president of the American Polygraph Association, and she passed with flying colors. She was later told that of all the abductees who had been administered a lie detector test to appear on the show, she was the only one to pass. And then there is Betty's so-called star map. She gave it to an amateur astronomer by the name of Marjorie Fish, who spent years trying to track down the star system using available technology at the time. There was only one star system that had the exact layout and could only be the Zeta Reticuli system. There is much debate on whether this is actually what Betty remembered and drew. It is interesting that this is one of the few systems that has what is called a Goldilocks zone, where most of the circumstances are lined up to support life. Even though Carl Sagan logically disputed this, there is no way that Betty could have had prior knowledge because Zeta Reticuli wasn't discovered and added to the Gleese catalog until eight years after her abduction. Most theories trying to debunk Betty and Barney Hill's abduction verge on absurd to laughably absurd. What they saw was a misidentified aircraft beacon. They fell asleep when they stopped to let the dog out and dreamt the whole thing, etc. Despite the debunkers and detractors, there are a couple very compelling theories. A few days before their initial hypnotherapy session with Dr. Simon, an episode of The Outer Limits aired on TV called The Bellaro Shield. It featured aliens from outer space that were similar to the Hill's description, but not quite. Barney might have subconsciously integrated these beings into his narrative as they had a couple years to elaborate on the original UFO encounter. One of the lesser-known theories that is becoming more popular due to the nefarious information that has been released on the CIA over the years is that Betty and Barney Hill were the subjects of an MK Ultra experiment gone public. Philip Coppins, the late author and radio host who focused on fringe science, believed that the Hills were being monitored by U.S. Air Force intelligence before the encounter took place. It wasn't a coincidence that Major James McDonald befriended them, who happened to be ex-CIA. UFO researcher Donald Keynote would receive over a hundred letters a day, but chose to focus on Betty and Barney's unremarkable case. Less than 24 hours later, he had arranged for the Hills to be visited by top-level scientists. One of the scientists, C.D. Jackson, had previously worked on psychological warfare techniques for President Eisenhower. Coppins said, It seems that Betty and Barney Hill were at the center of a web that involved U.S. Air Force intelligence and top military experts in psychological warfare. The evidence suggests that the Hills were the subjects, or victims, of a psychological experiment. Another intriguing connection was made by Barney Hill himself. He suggested that his captors were able to cloak themselves in a conventional image to minimize the shock of seeing something so completely foreign. Why would they need to pretend to be gray aliens that were still so frightening that it scarred them for life? Non-human entities abducting human beings, performing experiments of a sexual nature, being deceptive about their message and appearance. This is very similar to what happened in Genesis chapter 6. 
when the sons of God came down to earth and took women of whom they chose, eventually creating a race of hybrids. It comes down to four possible scenarios. One, the hills made the whole thing up for reasons known only to them. Or two, they were confused by a string of strange circumstances and they built a story to explain the confusion over the years that followed. Or three, they were visited and abducted by a UFO from the planet orbiting Zeta Reticuli. Or four, they were deceived into believing that they were abducted and thus started a whole cultural phenomenon of deceit. UFO sightings and abductions last to this day, but it all seemed to start with Betty and Barney Hill on a lonely road in 1961. Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping. Narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Do you have a story that needs to be told? Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your scary but true story and we'll consider it for broadcast. Please hit the like button and subscribe if you enjoyed this story and leave a comment. It really does help us out. If you were offended by any of the portrayals in this story or felt that we were appropriating culture in any way, we say, sorry, not sorry. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.